If you checked out the last episode of the podcast, episode 251, you would have noticed it was a session taken from our recent Autumn Summit, which is our full day virtual event that we hold every quarter for our THT Plus members. Well, we're keeping that theme going and I'm excited to share with you another session taken from the Autumn Summit recently. And this one is all about where we go next with virtual care. So our summits are made possible by the support of our sponsors. And one of the gold sponsors for the Autumn Summit was Telstra Health, an organisation who's actively helped many hospitals and health systems engage in virtual care services. So they're in a prime position to speak on this topic that you're about to hear. And just a reminder... If you want to check out these summit sessions as videos, jump onto the Talking Health Tech website and go to our video library. Sessions four, five, and six are available for anyone to view. The rest of the sessions in this summit and previous ones as well are available for THT Plus members. So consider joining as a THT Plus member to get full access to all this amazing content on offer to learn and connect about health tech. But here we go. This episode is taken from session five of the Autumn Summit 2022 about what is next for virtual care. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech, a podcast and membership community about technology in healthcare. Here's your host, Peter Birch. How is virtual care supporting the needs of patients? And what challenges do clinicians need to overcome? when utilising virtual care services. How can we ensure greater adoption of virtual care moving into the future? This is session five of the Talking Health Tech Autumn Summit titled, Where To Next With Virtual Care? Featuring Bridget Homewood, Regional General Manager, Business Development at Telstra Health. Isaac Wall, Assistant Director of Nursing, Telehealth and Virtual Care, the Tasmanian Department of Health. Lachlan Opoff, General Manager at Calvary Central Districts Hospital. Before this discussion, we asked the health tech community how much healthcare could reasonably be delivered virtually post-COVID. 60% of people thought that between a quarter and a half of healthcare could be delivered virtually. 29% of people thought more than half. 10% of people thought less than a quarter. Let's go to the panel to hear what they have to say. So I was going to make a joke, but I'm well aware that that didn't add up to 100 for those that were taking a close eye to the stats there. If you go to our LinkedIn and follow us on LinkedIn, you can see the survey that was put out and you know, see the stats there. But the main one that stood out there was definitely the key call out there in terms of how much care can be reasonably delivered virtually. So whether or not that'll shape part of this conversation here, I'm really keen to go around and understand a bit more about the panel firstly. So to go to perhaps Isaac, I'm really keen to understand how virtual care has been supporting your patients within your healthcare setting. Currently, virtual care is the largest part that it's supporting in our space here in Tasmania is the COVID at home initiative that we put in place to support people isolating at home so that we don't overlap our emergency services and EDs and look at you know different pathways of care. So fully virtual support model supported by the MyCare Manager platform that we provide people with healthcare like peripherals, observation equipment, and they can take them in their own home. And then they're supported by nursing staff, doctors offsite who provide advice and other alternate pathways so that we're not seeing potentially COVID-positive people through all of our EDs and ambulances and things like that. That's probably the largest one that we're doing at the moment. And um, we're seeing pretty good success in it so far. Amazing. Thank you. Really important role. Lachlan, from your side, how's virtual care shaping what you do? 
So I'm uh, also the general manager for my home hospital, which is an acute tier one funded hospital in South Australia. And so we are a public facility whereby we admit acute presentations. We virtually monitor patients every day through them putting their observations through uh, the MyCare manager as well. But we also use virtual and telehealth to undertake daily ward rounds. And then we dispatch out a range of paramedics and nurses to do some of the tactile home care requirements. We also have pathology providers and imaging providers as well. So our model totally means that a patient never actually needs to go into a bricks and mortar hospital. They can be admitted straight from the general practitioner or extracted from an emergency department or an inpatient ward or even from a nursing home and never needing to go into one of our public health facilities. So total hospital avoidance and management. Mm. Really important as well, you know, at this time. And I want to learn a bit more about how virtual care has been used pre-COVID and how we might think about it post-COVID, because both of those responses, you know, shape very much around the need right now. Isaac, to that point that I mentioned before around, you spoke a bit about how virtual care is being used now. Tell me about pre-COVID world and what that looked like with virtual care in in your Um, In Tasmania, virtual care hasn't had a huge implementation prior to COVID, I think. There's been a lot of resourcing issues and cost associated issues with that. We've had previous experiences with looking at virtual care models for rehabilitation programs, cardiac programs, and then also just sort of more broadly telehealth in general, particularly supporting our outpatient clinics. That was always seen as sort of a alternate model and sort of trying to get clinicians to think of, you know, telehealth and virtual care, not just as a sort of additional choice for you know, a modality of care and rather as a true modality of care to completely provide care through that has been a real challenge because pre-COVID it was not really considered. And all of a sudden COVID came in and they had massive directions from, you know, executives down to basically completely adapt models of care and how they adjust that. And so we basically saw this huge demand, but not a lot of supply because the infrastructure wasn't quite there to support it yet. And we've built upon that through COVID, through hotel quarantine programs where we use remote monitoring solutions to support, you know, anywhere between cohorts of 20 people to 240 people to get them safely through a quarantine period, or if they tested positive into the correct, you know, medical support that they required. So it's been a huge shift between the pre and the post in Tasmania in particular. Interesting. I'll go to Lachlan later, but it sounds like we've got Bridget now. Hey, set the scene for us. Telstra Health's broader role when it comes to virtual care. Oh, yeah. Look, it's obviously huge on the agenda for Telstra Health. As Isaac and Lachlan both know, we work closely with them and their services to provide that remote patient monitoring capability. And, you know, that has really, I guess, been the cornerstone and the foundation, I'd say, of our virtual care practice here at Telstra Health. Obviously, huge expansion that's taken place through COVID, but even prior to that, huge amount of different patient cohorts that are looking at trying to monitor people from home, from geriatric patients to, you know, recovery post-orthopedic surgery, oncology, palliative care, gestational diabetes, acute post-acute care. So really a huge range of cohorts that are looking to remotely monitor patients. I mean, what we're seeing in the market now is sort of the what next conversations. There's obviously a huge amount of issues outside of the COVID landscape, like ambulance ramping, which we know is a huge problem, particularly, you know, we've seen that in the press over the past couple of days down in Victoria. You know, how can we better utilise telehealth and virtual care services to take the pressure off the health system? How can we better utilise that capability on a broader scale? So how can we look at utilising command centres? They're a hot topic across the country. Any new hospitals that are being built are typically being built with these the infrastructure to enable a command centre. Um, so how can you look at utilising virtual care at scale to better you know, maximise the productivity of clinicians but also keep patients at home? 
when it's clinically appropriate, you know, they're most comfortable to be. So that's sort of huge on the agenda as well. We're seeing that a lot. You know, the other real shift is around, and I heard it in the presentation earlier, around this switch from tactical to strategic. And I think with COVID, particularly around virtual care, there was a huge tactical response incredible clinicians who just sort of shifted overnight to deliver care virtually you know we're so lucky to have such a, an incredible workforce that enabled that to happen and all the you know all the people behind the scenes that enabled that to happen but what now you know we see happening is very much the need to put a strategy behind that so how do you look to expand cohorts of patients that are utilizing virtual care how can that be data driven um, how can you ensure consistency and alignment and sharing of best practice and, you know, all of those components across the health system um, to have a more strategic approach to utilising virtual care in all its forms. So there's sort of some of the big agenda items that we're seeing across the market at the moment. Absolutely. No mean feat. Lachlan, from your perspective, does some of that resonate with you? Think about some of the, and also, you know, actually making some of that happen, perhaps start also to speak to some of the challenges that might need to be overcome and how we might go about that. Absolutely, it does. I, I was in a privileged position. We had our model of care up and running pre some of the COVID stuff coming out. And so what we saw was a real challenge for clinicians in terms of, well, how do we even extend what we're currently doing to accommodate some of the COVID restrictions that were happening and limiting the spread? So it challenged a lot of the clinical thinking and rationale around drug therapeutic regimes, how much actually does need to be delivered tactically, how much can we bring back in into our virtual care centre. I think one of the other things for me is what happens next. Every week, getting approached by other tech companies or startups that have a great new product, but what's that strategy to tie it all in together? Otherwise, you end up with a huge range of toys but it starts to lose focus of the patient, which is the centre of why we're doing it. So having that glue, that strategy, the drive forward, I think is huge. So yeah, just touching on what Bridget said, that really resonated. Isaac, there's been a lot of investment into virtual care driven by COVID, whether it be intent prior or not, but obviously there's a lot of investment that's been made. How do we kind of take stock now and make use of those in a, coming into like a post-COVID era? Yeah, I think this is really quite the key because, you know, essentially with COVID, purse strings were loosened and a huge flood of investment into the space. But now as various government and non-government healthcare bodies are sort of shifting to a sort of business as usual with living with COVID rather than a pandemic response model, and they're looking at more sustainable models of delivering this care, all of a sudden the almighty dollar is front and foremost. And how do we actually leverage those previous investments into a sustainable model of care? becomes quite key, particularly for us, currently got this massive program going on. We have, I'm sure that this is across the country and probably the world over, that clinical staffing resources are quite short. We don't have necessarily all the staff that we want or require. And so trying to look at leveraging virtual care to overcome those shortages, be it geographic or bridging between acute, subacute community, or seeing how we can do that to form the sustainable workforce and utilizing virtual care as this core modality becomes really important. And this is a strategic view that can't really be done just from the top down or just from grassroots. It's got to be really at that epicenter of operational needs, strategic and leveraging those you know, investments made becomes really difficult question. And I'm sure every single health body that's involved in this has a different answer. Can I also just say that I think patient expectations have changed? And mm. now that they've also got to, it's not just about the clinicians playing with the products, the patients have paid played with the products. And so they're going to expect on the other side, these options to be treated in their home or treated whilst they're at work, that 24 access with 
actually having to travel anywhere at any point in time. And so once again, the whole industry is going to have to shift to meet patient expectations. Yeah, just going on with that, particularly, you know, when you talk about virtual care and telehealth, a core assumption is it's like, oh, well, you know, the elderly demographic that aren't used to using phones and mobiles and things like that, we're not going to be able to really reach them. We're going to have to rely on traditional methods of healthcare for them. But since the beginning of COVID, you know, the elderly population has been FaceTiming family. They've been reaching out to their grandkids. They've really adopted this. And in fact, some of the best proponents of virtual care and telehealth that we've seen in Tasmania have been the elderly population because all of a sudden they've also realized in the last two years that these models of care are available to them. And they're going, well, it takes me an hour and a half or two hours or whatever it is to drive to my local clinic just to have a 15-minute talk with my cardiologist who doesn't lay hands on me. Why can't I do this the same way over phone call or, you know, that sort of stuff. And so it's really challenging these sort of core concepts that we have or in these assumptions that we have about virtual care and its implementations. Mm. And Pete, you mentioned before, you know, sort of what are some of the challenges around that? And it's like, how do we harness this momentum that we've got in utilising virtual care? You know, the workforce is exhausted. There's no question about it. You know, it's been an incredibly challenging couple of years so we have to absolutely keep that in mind. But how do we maintain this incredible opportunity that, that we've had to accelerate virtual care and how it's delivered and, um, you know, an alternative model? You know, as Lachlan said, patients are expecting this now. There's no turning back. So for me, how do we sustain this model? How do we keep the momentum going? How do we maintain ongoing investment in virtual care to explore what could be um, now that we've got everyone over the hump of thinking, can I, can't I do it? We know we can do it now. And we've got all these incredible examples of how we can do it. So it's really about how do we sustain that? How do we keep exploring what else we could do? How do we look at better virtualizing outpatient appointments? You know, not just the sort of hospital in the home model, but all the hundreds of thousands of people that are on waiting lists across Australia for you know, outpatient appointments. How do we look at the tack on that um, utilizing virtual care? So I think some exciting but equally sort of challenging issues ahead to tackle. But you know, I think it's a silver lining. I think from my perspective, what's come out of COVID is really you know being able to leverage this exciting technology to support a different way of delivering care. Yeah, I want to stick with you for a second because then I'll also go to Isaac and Lachlan for their thoughts. You know, in their own setting. We started touching on some of the more innovative ways to use virtual care and to help others think more differently about, you know, how best to utilize virtual care, given through that lens of like, how do we keep that momentum and solve for some problems? So tell me more about, you know, some of the innovative models that you've seen or the, you know, different ways that virtual care could be leveraged to start to speak to some of these points that you raise that we need to mm. keep sustaining that change. Well, look, there's pockets of innovation everywhere. And I remember Isaac Lachlan, whether it was you before who mentioned, you know, we need to start sort of bringing some of that together. Look, we've seen a lot of great things. You know, there's I know there's a metropolitan health service in Sydney at the moment that's providing telehealth uh, virtual ICU services to the western parts of, of New South Wales. And, you know, what an incredible way of providing consultant expertise to an understaffed, um, under-resourced area of the country. You know, and, and those sorts of models have been around for some time, but really sort of putting that on steroids and taking the pressure off those systems, I think, is a really exciting way um, of the future. We're seeing great things like, you know, innovative models around orthopedics. So, you know, typically you might have a hip or a knee replacement and I'm an ex-physio, so this is sort of close to my heart, but post-operative knee or hip replacement, you might be in hospital for you know, a couple of days up to a week. We're seeing, you know, opportunities for patients to go home on day one, on day two, typically a physio or an OT would have gone out to see that patient and every patient. Now they can be monitored and a physio or an OT can go out only if it's needed. Um, the patient's still monitored. They can still have that engagement. 
But, you know, the impact of that on the workforce is huge. You know, instead of monitoring a caseload of 20 patients, all of a sudden you can monitor a caseload of 200. Um, So that really starts to change the balance of, you know, what capacity the workforce, the existing workforce has. So that's really exciting. We've seen some other great things around gestational diabetes and looking to, you know, enable pregnant women to provide information on their diet, the glucose and other, you know, measures that the endocrinologists are monitoring instead of that patient having to, you know, either come in quite heavily pregnant and uncomfortable and with COVID and rain and all these sorts of things, being able to provide those services virtually, I think is incredibly impactful on the patient and allows that, you know, additional communication channel back with the clinicians. So look, there's many, many more, but they're just sort of a handful of, you know, exciting ideas that I think are happening across the sector. But I'm sure Isaac and Lachlan, you're saying many more. I'd love to hear from both of you, whether it's something that you're seeing in your own health setting or elsewhere, perhaps something you're implementing or even a need in terms of innovative ways to use virtual care. Maybe we'll start with Lachlan. I think one of the ways that we always try to use virtual care is in that unpredicted demand. And for me, I think the greatest opportunity that we've seen is in that planned surgical tranche. And absolutely, so the program that we've got, we're seeing patients day one post-op with that physio model that you just spoke about, Bridget. For, I think, going forward, though, the models of care, I think, are gaining some momentum, but it's the robustness of the devices that we're sending out. I think that's where there's a great opportunity in terms of size, durability. When we post it out, what does that charging aspect look like? Just some of those real logistical issues around those devices. Where's the opportunity to tap into mobile phone devices with apps and smartwatches around pulse oximetry, uh, pulse monitoring as well. How do we grab a 12-lead ECG machine and, and make it that a patient can fit that at home around the site? So I think the next opportunity or the next vantage point will be in the invention or development of devices. I love when you ask someone that question who's like, in the thick of it, they give such a specific answer. It's like something like front of my, like, you know, things that you do, which is really good. Like it takes the conversation just from this is what we should be doing. Like This is what we're seeing on a day today. So it's really good. Isaac, I'd love to hear from you as well. I really agree with Lachlan with the limit of devices and, you know, what we can provide because we're really only just starting to see just sort of traditional monitoring supplanted into a virtual care system. And then as more investment, more technology goes into it, you know, there will be advances in what we can do. But particularly surrounding models of care and like what some innovative models, you know, how you use virtual care is sort of like, you know, how long is a piece of string? Some people, various models of care, they're essentially just using it as a virtual cowbell. It's just a triage system just to provide that extra sort of safety measure. There's other ones where like Lachlan's one where it's completely, you know, replaced for a brick and mortar hospital. There's other ones where it's, you know, I think it was the Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide, where they have their virtual pediatric and adolescent virtual care urgent clinic, you know, which is addressing that need of particularly like, you know, it's after 5 p.m., the GP clinics are closed and you've got a sick child. Every parent's been in that situation where you go, I don't think they're that unwell, that they require an emergency department, but I literally have no other choice because every other medical option available to me is closed because it's Tuesday at 6 p.m. And addressing those core needs where they can fill these needs and not see these people, or at least not that they won't see them in person, more so just acting as sort of a filter where they can put people more appropriately into care. So these children and adolescents, they don't necessarily need to be in ED, can have a contact with a doctor and a nurse and get the advice that they require. Or if they do require an ED, at least they've received appropriate care and then can be triaged directly. And they may not even need to stop in the ED to begin with. They might go to a specialty service. 
Sorry. And Isaac, I was just going to jump in there. I mean, that whole virtual ED model, you know, that's going to explode because there's just such pressure on the system and there's such capability available to be able to address that. So for me, I think that's where the exciting stuff, you know, is really going to start to ramp up. And also, Pete, really, the innovation is not always in the tech. I think a lot of the time it's in the model. It's in the model of care. So how can we break down acute primary care and aged care and bring that together, utilising virtual care so that there is a shared record when you can anticipate someone who might move from an aged care service into an ED how can you intervene there so it's preventing that unnecessary admission? I think there's a lot sitting in that that we need to explore and start to sort of, you know, trial interesting ideas in that space so that we can start to break down those, what we know, existing barriers around funding, et cetera. But I think if we really are putting the patient at the core, we need to start breaking that and making some change in that space. Hmm. It's interesting thinking about putting patients at the centre and the core reason for doing that. Do we think, you know, as a panel, is it to serve and underserved demand? Is it due to just the like the vast nature, like the geographical kind of size of Australia and the fact that not everyone has easy access to things? Like, is it that we need more patients to receive virtual care or is it the patients need to receive better virtual care? I might just go around the panel too in terms of how they think about that role there and we'll start to close it out. Maybe Isaac. Short answer is probably all of the above, but I think particularly with like geographical access and things like that, you know, like we're an exceedingly large country with exceedingly sort of dense urban urban areas around specific ones. And you look at states like Tasmania, where we essentially only have one tertiary level hospital in the South and Hobart, or like, you know, Northern Territory with Darwin as essentially the only referral centre. Just as we sort of go into the digital age and we look at virtual care being implemented, you know, ubiquitously across healthcare, ideally it should not matter where you live and you should be able to receive access you know, addressing equity of access from a geographical point of view, but also whether or not, you know, you have the actual the ability to actually get to your appointments or you don't have a car, you can't drive, that sort of thing. It has so many implications that could address so many needs from staffing shortages to geographic access to equity of access that um, it can be really applied anywhere. Amazing. I think it's inspirational too for health systems thinking about the role of virtual care post-COVID as well. Some of those problems to be solved. Lachlan, from your side? Agree with everything that's already been said. The one thing that I'd also add, though, is by putting patients at the centre is actually about patient outcomes. We know that the risk of falls can be diminished if the patient is familiar with their environment or patients with sundowners or dementia, the, the familiar environments, good, the, the deconditioning that happens in hospitals, the nutritional intake from a patient, all of these things can be served better in the patient's home. So leveraging technology is also actually about delivering better patient outcomes as well, not substandard or, yeah. A lot of potential there to go above and beyond in some instances better than those yeah. person scenarios like those examples you raised. Bridget, to close out the session, we've got two minutes, kind of some of your thoughts and kind of next steps from you. No, look, I, I really like what Lachlan said before about focusing on the patient and the patient outcome. The expectation of consumers has changed. And I think the capacity and capability of the health service has changed. And so we need to really start challenging ourselves and thinking, you know, we have a traditional model of care delivery that was built on a history of bricks and water and a very different ecosystem to what we have now. So um, I think we really need to stretch ourselves and think about how we can do care differently. Virtual care is just the start. And I think we're in an exciting time where we need all the sort of small innovative vendors and people with ideas to be coming up with all of these great pieces of technology and ideas for different clinical workflows that are really going to push us in the direction of change. 
I think the younger generations are going to be expecting something very different to what is the um, status quo now. So I think we're in an exciting time and we just really need to try to harness the momentum of the past couple of years from a digital advancement perspective and forward into this next phase. Absolutely. What a great way to close out this session. We're going to continue the conversations with more panels. So I ask you to stick around. Leave your comments in the chat, those that are attending, to let us know what you thought of the session and any final thoughts as well. But Bridget, Lachlan, Isaac, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit talkinghealthtech.com.